Good morning. You are listening to KPOO San Francisco 89.5 and on the World Wide Web at kpoo.com. This is Prison Focus Radio. Slavery is back. In fact, it was never abolished. The 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution abolished slavery, except in prison. At the current rate of incarceration, by the year 2010, the majority of all African-American men between 18 and 40 will be in prison. The state as their captor. It's going to take people who are willing to fight, not people who want to negotiate with the enemy.
All right, beautiful people, I am grateful you could join me here this morning on Prison Focus Radio. You are tuned in to KPOO San Francisco 89.5, and you may be listening on the World Wide Web at kpoo.com. I am your host, Nube Brown, and we are going to get started uh, with the continuation of the transformation of Brother Malik from Leroy Bruce Thompson. We have just celebrated Juneteenth this past weekend and Father's Day. So big shout out to um, of the way too many fathers that are still captured on the plantation. And Juneteenth, while we celebrate uh, the announcement that the 1865 proclamation the emancipation proclamation said that chattel slate that slavery has ended codified by the 13th amendment we now know that slavery still exists and was never abolished because of the exception clause that says neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. That is Section 1 of Amendment 13. So with that exception clause, just blew it all up. And so the myth that slavery was abolished persists. It is not abolished. And it is alive and well in our prison system. So um, involuntary servitude is slavery. And slavery needs to be abolished in 2023. We really need to be clear about that narrative. All right. We are also going to hear uh, from uh, Balagoon. Minister Balagoon is going to be reading us an article on materialism, and Brother Balagoon is very deep and poetic in his commentary, and I hope you've been enjoying it here on Prison Focus Radio. He is a featured uh, presenter here, if you've been listening to this uh, show for some time. All right, but we are going to get started with the continued transformation of Brother Malik. And we left off where... Brother Malik's father had shown him his hiding place of the goods, the money, and the drugs, and instructed his young son that if anything were ever to happen to his father, to go and get those things and uh, relocate them to uh, young Brother Malik, young Leroy's hiding place that he let his father know that he had had. Okay. Shortly after, uh, after we went through that little experience, they were asked about the hiding place and all that. They did come and get him. They uh, knocked on the door one morning, and uh, he answered the door, and it was the police. And they... Uh, Proceeded to arrest him, and it was so, uh, it was, it was heart wrenching and gut wrenching to me because I idolized my father, and he was tough. So, I, I didn't understand how he let these two die just 
take him away from us like that. I, I didn't understand. And nobody explained to me about authority and, you know, positions and all that. I mean, I knew about the police from just general knowledge, I guess. But I never had personalized that experience of, you know, the police can just come and get you out of your own house and take you. I, I, you know, I didn't, I, I don't know. But anyway, uh... All right, here I asked Brother Malik to please... Uh, spend a little bit more time with this because it seemed like a real turning point in his thought processes, in his transformation. Yeah, that, that really kind of like shaped my attitude towards uh, not just the police, but authority, period. I didn't, I, I never really understood how somebody that wasn't, the only authority I recognized and knew at that time was family. You know, mother, my father, my grandmother, aunts, uncles, like that. But who, who are these people? And they're cockade. In a black neighborhood, where they even come from? Who, what, you know, what the hell is going on? Matter of fact, I think those were the first uh, uh, white people I ever seen. I, I, I lived in Watts at that time, totally black. Totally black. The schools, everybody was black. I'm like, what, where do these guys come from? And they're talking about I made a comment here about uh, these two policemen having guns and handcuffs to handcuff your, his father. Yeah, they were in plain clothes. They didn't draw their weapons. Just were like talking, and I didn't, I didn't understand it. Just of the talk, if if I even heard it. But uh, I mean, my father just humbled himself. I'm like, mm -hmm. what the hell is? Because all the other men I seen my father tell you was boisterous and tough and braggadocious mm -hmm. and the whole thing. Now he's just there and humbled down and, you know, bowed his head. What the hell is going on here? You know, and I'm mm -hmm. looking at this. Who are these guys? What's going on? And I did not recognize that as his demeanor. He didn't carry himself like that. Now all of a sudden, and I mean, it was tough guys in the neighborhood and he was you know, he didn't buckle down to them. Now, how's he buckling to these little two? Anyway, uh, I didn't I didn't get it. And nobody, not even my mother, she's crying, but she didn't explain nothing to me, you know. And This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. The last thing my father said to me when they were leading him away, he turned around and he looked at me. You know, we made eye contact. He said, you are the man of the house. You hear me? And I, I said, huh? He said, you're the man of the house. Do you hear me? I said, yeah. And they told him something and hustled him on away. I was like, wow. Okay. Uh. All right. Here I checked in on his age at the time just to make sure that I hadn't lost myself in any timeline. I had started school already. So I was about five, or going real close to five if I wasn't five. But anyway, uh, they hustled him on the way. I stood on the steps and cried. Mm. Nobody came to comfort me or ask me what's happening or nothing. Nothing. That was that. So the next thing I remember, uh, that was a very traumatic uh, 
thankfully, I didn't know what the hell to do or what, you know. Daddy's gone. Well, I mean, you know, what do, what do we do? I, you know, what am I supposed to do? Is he coming back? When is he coming back? What's going on? I'd ask, try to ask my mother. She's crying. She go to your room. Go to your go to my room. Wait a minute. What's, what did they do to Daddy? Who is them people? Blah, 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 you know. And no answers. Get out oh, of here. You have 60 seconds remaining. I'm dressing over what's going on here. How, who are those people? What happened? Why are they taking my daddy away? Is he coming back? When is he coming back? Who, you know, the whole damn bit. And, and matter of fact, uh, this was in the 40s. And they had to say, you know, you should be seen and not heard and all that kind of stuff. They were they were Southern people, Southern transplants. And they had that mentality that, you know, it was it was just a, a different time. Sure. Different understanding. No such thing as child abuse. Everybody got whoopings, as we called them. They were really beaten. <laughs> you know, extension cords, belts, sticks, uh, anything they grabbed, anything that was handy, that's what you would get hit with. So it was mm-hmm. one of those type of times that, as a child, your parents were never wrong. You didn't have any say at all. Right. You didn't have no opinion, nothing. I mean, it was just different. I called one time, one time uh, I broke a lamp. She had this, it was a set of lamps and it's all pretty and all that. And I broke it playing in the house, which I wasn't supposed to be doing anyway. And she told me up. She got, I mean, put whips on me, my mother. And uh, I complained to my father. He laughed at me. <laughs> I mean, actually, you know, a belly laugh. Let me tell you, you haven't got a whooping. You don't know what a whooping is. Wow. Talking about, he told me, he said, "Man, let me tell you about a whooping." My mother, which was my grandmother, and I loved her. Boy, I loved her with a passion. He was like, she used to tie me up in a croquet sack and lift me up on the on the barn. It was a, uh, I guess, a uh, extension to the barn or something that hand held out over the barn. She was tying him in a sack, pull him up on the barn, and beat him with six till he stopped moving. Or take him out into the woods. He told me the other thing that he, he used to do to him was take him out into the woods. And that's what he called them, the woods. He'd take me out into the woods and tie me to a tree. And if I didn't get loose, oh well. And he'd just leave him there overnight or whenever he came home. Okay, go on in there and clean up and get you something to eat. It's like, what? My grandmother did that? I couldn't. No, I don't believe that. Not my grandmother. Sweetie, she is. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But yeah, that's the type well, of punishment he used to get. But that was when he was born in Mississippi. Mm-hmm. And my grandmother, uh, Choctaw, part Choctaw, part black, part white, all kind of mixed up in her. But uh, so that was the case. He's telling me, you know, you complaining about, you don't know. You don't even know what a whooping is. You know, I used to get really mm. sticks. Here I commented on the work that's being done out here to address the historical implications of this kind of punishment on our children uh, with, you know, the vestiges of slavery and, as Brother Malik has pointed out, uh, the sign of the times 
you know, in the 40s and the 50s and how uh, children were being treated and, and what that might look like uh, today. I've had thoughts on that very subject. I used to get buked, <laughs> rebuked. Oh, this call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. I never, I never, I have four kids, two boys and two girls. And uh, my oldest is, you said 51. Yeah, he's not, yeah. Well, he'll be 51. No, he is 51. He'll be 52 in December. But anyway, uh, I've never raised a hand to none of them. And my wife tried to get me to beat him, you know. Get him, what are you talking about? Get him, do this. I remember he broke a window and, mm-hmm. you know, planted outside with his friends. And I had told him about throwing stuff and all that. And he did it anyway and broke a window. And my wife was like, oh, you got to get him. I'm like, baby, I'm, I'm, I, I was beat. I'm, I'm not going to hit that boy. No. What do you mean? Yeah, I don't know. And we used to have a conflict about that all the time. Any time that something would happen, try to get me to punish the kid. Here I congratulated him, of course, um, but also commented that he had cut the cycle of violence within the household. Exactly. I've been in and out of jail all my life, and I recall 
sitting him down and apologizing to him because I hadn't been in his life that much. And I was like, man, look, please forgive me. Telling you this and telling you that. And as you can see, my sister calls me an immature bastard. (laughs) 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 But uh, anyway, I was telling him, hey, man, look, man, your, your father is full of emotions and stuff, man, and you you don't understand what I've been through, man, and why I lash out at times unthinkingly because of your system and blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah. He said, wait a minute, Pop. I said, I haven't been a very good example to catch this. Oh, whoa, Pop. So, oh, oh, oh. You are my inspiration. He said, you have taught me vigorously, intelligently, and I love you, man. And what you have done to me and for me is shown me what not to do. And I appreciate you, and I love you, man. That brought tears to my eyes. <laughs> because it was it was traumatic for me going through these jailhouses and all that. But it was a lesson to him. He's seeing this in actuality. You know, my mm-hmm. dad did X, Y, Z, and locked him up. Man, I, he went to jail when I was at your stand. I didn't see him no more because I was blah, blah, blah. You know. But anyway, let's get back mm-hmm. to the main subject. Well, let me just say happy Father's Day for the Malik. Oh, thank you so very much. I really appreciate that. It's it's going to get deep in a minute. I haven't even got to when the revolutionary thinking came about in the the, end. Remember, this is is in a time, okay, I was born in 45, so 55, I was 10. I'm not even to Emmett Till's death yet. Right. And the effect that that had on me. That was in 1955. All right. Here I interjected again because before I wanted Brother Malik to move on to his, the revolutionary thinking, the building of the revolutionary thinking, and considering the fact that he was still not even five, I wanted to find out what was happening with his four-legged best friend, Bozo. In the backyard. He was chained in the backyard because my mother insisted. What, what, what happened is a couple of times she raised her voice, you know, telling me, hey, get in here, do this, do that, do that. And he was ready to attack. I had to grab him because he mm. was like trying to get my mother, say, uh-uh, get that dog out of here. Mm-hmm. Take him out and put it back. And I'd just go outside with him and sit on the porch and, you know, we'd wrestle and play and all that. And she, eventually she sent my father out there and he chained, you know, he drove a stake into the ground. Not a stake, a, a iron uh, pipe. He drove that into the ground and put the chain on it and chained my dog up to that and told me don't let him out till I tell you to let him out. Mm. I'm like, okay, daddy. So he was chained in the backyard when all that Ruckus was going on because he would attack. He was a vicious piece of work. Listen, anything that moved within his domain, his range, he would attack it. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. A bird, if the wind blew a piece of paper through the yard, he would try to get that. (laughs) I'm telling you, he was vicious. And my father encouraged him to be like that. Right. My father used to unchain him 
and take him down the, down the street and down the alleys and all that and let him attack other dogs, let him fight other dogs and all that. Oh, man, it was something. Oh, wait a minute. I, I recall. <laughs> oh, boy. I recall the incident where I don't know what was happening, but I heard... You have 60 seconds remaining. Oh, wow. Mm. Okay, I heard a record, but I came out, and my dog was fighting about five other dogs. My father jumped in. My father and my and my and both of my dog was fighting about five or six dogs, and my father was picking them up and throwing them. And they was fighting him, and Bozo had killed two of them. Um, it was terrible. He was a neighborhood terror. I was on point like about four or five times for attacking people and banging the mailman, the milkman, and, you know. And that was at the time when the milkman used to deliver the milk to your house. All right, if you are just joining us, you are listening to Prison Focus Radio. I'm your host, Nube Brown, here on KPOO San Francisco 89.5, and you may be live streaming at kpoo.com. We are in conversation with, or we are just hearing the story of the transformation of Brother Malik uh, from Leroy Bruce Thompson, and... um, yeah, he's just running it down about his very, very early childhood. We are still in uh, his zero to five years old. But we are going to come back with the rest of uh, the story, which will be continuing um, until we get it done. Yeah, they, they, my dog and my father were fighting all these neighborhood dogs, killing them. Shortly after my father was arrested, uh, they would kill my dog. They poisoned him. And he wouldn't eat. Uh, you know, you couldn't throw, just throw something in the yard and he would eat it. You know? But I don't know how they did it. Anyway, my dog ended up dead. How they accomplished that feat, I don't know, because he would, you couldn't just throw no food at him and he'd eat it. How they did it, but he ended up dead. Like oh. problems they put something in the food. Like, my mother used to take a bowl out there, beat all that in it, spit it down, and go back in the house and he'd eat that. So I think it probably somebody snuck in the yard while he was chained up, put something in his food, and ended up there. And it was real hard for me. At the same time, my father was in jail, so it was a big, terrible thing. Shortly after that, uh, my mother took me to visit my father. I couldn't go in, but the jail, it was a, what they call it, H-O-J-J, the Hall of Something in Justice. Uh, I could holler. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. And uh, I'll stand on the sidewalk and wave, and he waved down at me and all that. So he hollered at me. Give that package to your mother. So he, I know what he, I knew what he was talking about, kind of drug, money, and all that. So, uh, I, you know, I let him know. Okay. Shortly after that, we moved. I gave her the money and all this and all that. So I guess she paid the bills that she had to do. And we moved out of our house to uh, uh, Ramona Gardens, which was located. Deep in East Los Angeles, 
predominantly Mexican, and we moved there to the projects. It wasn't a shock, but it was different. Different. I, I had a lot of friends. I made friends with people like that. But by the same token, I had a lot of fights. <laughs> this, the area we moved into was what they called hazard, a big hazard. That wasn't the name of the na- of the uh, project. The project was Ramona Gardens, but the game. When I say game, it's not like the Crips and the Bloods. It's not. It wasn't like that. The whole neighborhood was in hazard. And I mean, the mothers, the fathers, the grandmothers. The, it was a generational thing. Wow, look at this. The little boys, the, the, the kids my age, they were in the game. Everybody was in the game. And they were fighting all kind of other people. I did make a comment here about how at such a young age, five years old, he had to have a pretty high level of awareness and self-preservation and sur- a sense of survival. Um, and now having moved to a new new area and I, uh, you know, a new location and I wanted him to, uh, we would talk about getting into that on our next call. Okay. There's is another aspect that I'll get into on our next conversation because my mother reinforced what my father was telling me about being the man of the house. You're the man of the house. I'm like, uh. wait a minute, what about Lonnie? That's my older brother. Uh-huh. They get past him to me. I got an older brother. Wait a minute, I got a How come he ain't the man of the house? Why am I the man of the house? I, I didn't understand retardation. None of that. John, my father traumatized my poor brother, man. It was, anyway, uh, we got to go. All right. Please excuse the um, outdated terminology of uh, retardation or re- retarded. Um, I didn't take the time to correct Brother Malik, um, you know, as he is, you know, recounting a story, um, you know, way back in the 50s. So, um, but uh, look forward to hearing the rest of this uh, story as we're now going to get into an older brother uh, that he has just now mentioned. So come back next week, please, on the 29th. Thursday, 11 a.m., Prison Focus Radio at KPOO, San Francisco 89.5, or you can listen to it on the World Wide Web, kpoo.com. Oh, and you can listen to the archives um, anywhere you get your podcasts. Just look for Prison Focus Radio. And you can also uh, go to kpoo.com and listen there. Okay, Uh, we are going to take a quick musical break and then we're going to come back with the article on materialism by Minister Balagoon.
pieces, capitalist economy and the principal contradictions of scientific materialism. Uh, this is Brother Prime Minister Bellagoon. One of the general characteristics of capitalist economy is individualism. Hence, it can be safely said that while the struggle between the Confederate South and Unionist North freed New Africans from the traditional bonds of slavery, the capitalist economy contributed to the New Africans' re-enslavement to a materialistic idea of freedom, an attitude of individualism that is did more to stagnate our progress as a collective people. 180 years plus, up from slavery, this materialistic version of freedom is still shaping the scope of liberation promised by the Emancipation Proclamation of Abraham Lincoln and altered the scope of intensity of the struggle. This is why New Africans face so many issues today. We have accepted the idea of material gain and embraced the message, the subliminal message, should I say, that freedom and economic power requires nothing more than a life situated in pure hustle. Remember to remember, never to forget, that we now exist in a society that is full of contradictions and lies, a society that promotes worldwide democracy and only a type of freedom that is rooted in materialism. In other words, freedom for new Africans is now believed to be something that is sold as a privilege that only successful people can buy, something that enough money can buy us, which is twisted logic, and by extension, the type of thinking that has changed the whole context of the struggle and national aspirations of our people. Of course, one must understand the principal contradictions inherent in the capitalist economy in order to understand how materialism divided us as a people twisted our perspective of real freedom and made individualistic activity the norm. Understand that the principle of individualistic activity, number one, keeps new Africans from consolidating our financial resources. Number two, it keeps us from focusing our four plus trillion dollar a year spending ability towards a fixed objective. Number three, it keeps us weak as a people and locked into an ordered class within the socioeconomic system that is less than desirable. Needless to say, the idea of freedom that we have accepted is one that is exclusive to capitalism, and the image that the arch fiends have of the world, one wherein he is totally disconnected from responsibility for others and cares for no one's needs but his own. Remember to remember, never to forget, that an individual must stand entirely on his own two feet. This implies that the material dialectics involved are his own individual affair. This is why we of the New African nations say that none of the aims of capitalism or the materialistic objectives of America fall in sync with the New Africans' aspirations to liberate themselves. Free the land or remove themselves from a socio-political order rooted in white supremacy. No matter whether we examine it according to the principles of scientific materialism or just a scientific theory of history, the facts remain the same. 
This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. Needless to say, a look at the historical dialectics will show that the principal contradictions in the economy today are the same as yesterday. But without a critique of ourselves and American society, many of the dynamics involved in our struggle today can't be fully understood. As this understanding must grow out of knowledge of how and why homelessness, poor health care, poor education, police brutality, injustice, joblessness, and mass incarceration is still alive and breathing the so-called wretched of the earth after so many years. Go research it for yourself, and you'll find that the remorseless motion of history has once again brought us face-to-face and full circle with the circumstances and conditions that existed in 1929. The capitalist heart scenes, preoccupation with controlling global finances, and failing banks is causing nervousness amongst the super-rich who have pulled their money out of the economy and caused monetary inflation. The archfiend's fear is rooted in their instinctive knowledge that without a firm system in place, all that they have built in the name of capitalist economy and fair trade is lost, as was the case with Greece, Rome, Germany, Great Britain. The downward phase in the power of the Imperial Roman Empire and others began with the state of monetary inflation. It was monetary inflation, coupled with high prices in the lower classes, that decimated the working class and made it more expensive for the Roman Empire to bring new mercenary recruits in for long term service to the Roman Empire. Needless to say, The decline of commerce, monetary inflation, and the refusal of China to lend more money to the U.S. government will change the European world market in particular and adversely affect smaller, more vulnerable markets throughout the world. Taxes, due to the government of America, will soon become impossible to collect from the masses, and even when they are collected, It won't be enough to satisfy America's debt to China or to maintain, number one, the military-industrial complex, number two, the prison-industrial complex, and number three, the new health care industry, which is growing rapidly by the day. Over the past 90 years, America has spent large amounts of money to imprison poor people for years, no end while paying foreign for stationed in America for political asylum half of minimum wage to maintain their jails, the prisons, and even the hospitals. Service jobs outsourced right here in America. It's time to ask the people, is it okay to defund community resource programs while spending tax dollars to reinitiate the same conditions that existed on the plantation 180 years ago? Remember to remember, never to forget, that we are involved in a project whose significance and impact must be attributed to circumstances entirely controlled by the people, not by irresponsible and irrational enemies propped up with the coercive power of the state or the complicity of the U.S. government. Also keep in mind, 
that we are not just pointing out the contradictions that exist within the edifice of racial oppression in America and throughout the world, but questioning the very legitimacy of white supremacy as a system comprised of various elements. Historical dialectics indicate that a system that is crumbling under the weight of its own inaccuracy employs violence as its ultimate weapon and last line of defense. Hence, capitalism and the oppressive social arrangement today is predicated on the threat of violence and the coercive power of the police, who seem to have a monopoly on violence in the New African community. Understand that we come from a long line of very patient people, a people who have always tried to adjust ourselves to the difficult conditions superimposed on us under the system of white supremacy. And at every turn, we have come face to face with reality that raw violence was, is, and will always be the answer and last line of defense under a corrupt system. We are tired of police brutality. Our position is the same as any other group of people who exist at the lower levels of a society, obsessed with the problem of how to control their destiny and protect their women, their children, their homes, and communities. We are tired of police brutality in the name of law and order. We are tired of a judicial structure that uses legal trickeration to steal land from black farmers. We are tired of overcrowded prisons that are unsafe and filled with old men beset with medical problems. We are tired of homelessness, bank foreclosures, and the greed and thievery of 1%. We're tired of the arch scenes of big banking, big pharma, big retail, and the corporate structure in general. Understand that we've waited for over 180 years but faced opposition in every step we've taken towards being a part of this society. For more than 379 years, people of the noble African genotype have worked, bled, killed, and died for this country without wages, without proper food, without medicine, or living arrangements. Our new African forebears made America the economic powerhouse, built the homes of the slave masters, and withstood all the inexpressible cruelties that the institution of slavery could conjure up. Yet, 180 years later, we still must shoulder the burden of inequality and suffer gross injustices in the same type of inhumanity of the past. You have 60 seconds remaining. Yet, 180 years later, we must shoulder the burden of inequality and suffer gross injustices and the same type of humiliation of the past as second-class citizens or non-citizens. Here we are in 2023, waiting for change and trying every thinkable approach to the socioeconomic inequalities that exist. Why are new Africans still struggling for human rights? Why are new Africans still pushing for voter rights, trying to negotiate the terms of reparations, and organizing mass demonstrations for a change in the modus operandi of the system? Understand that when a people whose destiny has always been manipulated by others decides and states for the record that they reject the court conditions and circumstances imposed on them, 
and will now struggle to control their home. They have declared war. But they are no longer just interested in confronting the establishment with the principal contradictions of their own hypocrisy. They are interested in creating a meridian shift that moves the tectonic plates of the earth and rearranges all human affairs. This is why this period in history is producing such extreme responses to the human condition. Even some of the rich and powerful of this nation have seen the light of creative protest and joined the movement for change. What does this tell us? It tells us that one cannot sit in their positions of power and be silent on the issues that confront society. Nor can they be silent about the institutional racism that has eaten away at the fabric of the socio-civic order of America. In fact, the rich cannot afford to ignore the deplorable conditions of the poor, as the people's movement and direct action won't allow it anymore. In other words, there's an element in the people's movement today that won't tolerate that. When you see violent protests and witness the destructive elements within the movement, you are witnessing the small but highly organized elements that can apply enough pressure to the economic structure to achieve the measurable results of change that peaceful protest has not produced. Remember to remember, never to forget, that a militant detachment in a movement is that element that is willing to destroy property, fight fire with fire, or go to the extreme in the cause of the people. Needless to say, the next generation of the movement will respond to the rich and powerful of this nation far different than we respond to them today. They will question the conceptual framework of the struggle, the viability of each set of solutions put forth, and the success or failure of any strategy that is beyond the people's control. If you study the movement today, you'll find that our youth are strong and focused, but they're tired of the old system of things, and they're ready to give up all those things. The arch fiend has programmed new Africans to value as a sign of success or a measure of freedom. They have a concrete selflessness of purpose on advocating the new African human right, the most fundamental aspect of which is the right to self-government followed by the right to self-defense. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. In squaring this cipher of knowledge, I'll leave you with this as food for thought. This is the final phase of the struggle one in which the law of unexpected consequences will manifest themselves. Therefore, we must learn and know how to use the different techniques of negotiating from a position of limited power, as we are challenging the economic status quo and system of white supremacy upon which it rests. Thus, careful attention to detail is an absolute must. From behind enemy lines, I remain Prime Minister Bellacombe, a sworn companion of the prevailing winds of change. All right. Thank you, Minister.
Prime Minister Balagoon Cambon for that amazing article. Um, I did have some questions for him, and if you have some questions for him regarding this article, you can send those questions to endslaverynow, the number nine, at gmail.com. You can always reach me there and let me know if what you are hearing is uh, something that you enjoy or you want to participate or uh, there's something else that you would like to hear, give me some feedback. I'd love it. Okay. Um, and with all of that said, I want to remind you that we are coming up on the Prison Lives Matter Liberate Our Elders webinar that's going to be taking place August 4th through the 6th. If you have not marked your calendar for that date, which has been changed from the dates that we had in July, so it is now August 4th through the 6th, and uh, uh, so I want you all to attend. It is both in-person and, um, uh, and remote. We uh, here in California, our day will be August 6th and Chicago and New York. Um, I believe it's Chicago on the 4th and New York on the 5th. California on the 6th. We'll be sending out flyers fairly soon, but get ready to be a part of this um, amazing dialogue where you'll see uh, different cadres coming together, uh, boots on the ground organizations that are working to uh, dismantle or uh, shake up the colonial the colonialized mind. We are decolonizing our minds. We are uh, shaking up the status quo. We are building the world that we want to see that um, frees the land for people to act in true community and unity and solidarity and the real meaning of mutual aid where we are helping each other to get our needs met by withdrawing from uh, the dictates of the state, because we know that the state does not have our best interest at heart. We are watching mayors uh, and governors throughout the cities and the states um, defunding social programs, people's programs in favor of shoring up more monies for uh, the police and the military. So, um, you know, including our, our, our federal uh, uh, agencies. So, uh, yeah, we really need to, we really need to start building this People's Senate and coming together. So get to the webinar, August 4th through the 6th. Uh, with that also said, I would like to read to you uh, the, um, some of the tenets of the People's Senate. All right, you can get all of this information on your own by going to spiritofmandela.org. Uh, but I'm going to read to you here the People's Senate at a glance. The Distinguished International Panel of Jurists that heard testimony and reviewed documents introduced at the October 2021 International Tribunal on U.S. Human Rights Abuses Against Black, Brown, and Indigenous Peoples found the USA guilty of genocide. Yet, we must do more than simply celebrate the International Panel of Jurists' guilty verdict. 
Our job now is to organize a meaningful resistance to this genocide rooted in the Black, Brown, and Indigenous communities themselves. There are many ongoing and vital organizing efforts across the country, many local, some focused on single issues, others broader. All could be assisted by a network linking the various efforts, informing the many forces of the work of others, and amplifying the voices of all. That statement right there is one of my favorites. It's the many forces of the work of others. How we are looking towards each other is how it feels to me. All right. Thus, the spirit of Mandela Coalition, the organizers of the International Tribunal, is calling for the formation of a People's Senate that can help to construct a network to link these efforts and become a platform through which the struggles of each might become the struggle of all. We must speak out against genocide and other abuses with a collective voice and developing a program of action to address various issues and struggles that can unite and strengthen our collective voice. The People's Senate over time is working to provide a model for an alternative to existing governance, showcasing how a body might work that truly represents the people and striving to put decision-making in their hands. This could not be a more prescient time looking at the complete and utter failure of the misleadership of local governance, city, um, um, statewide governance, and federal governance. Our money is being stolen. Our resources are being stolen. The people are being genocided as we speak. The rise of child suicide, the thousands of people on the streets without homes, without access to uh, medical care, the burgeoning medical debt while billionaires continue to profit. This is a sickness, and this is why we are putting together this webinar, the Prison Lives Matter, Liberate Our Elders webinar, and uh, being informed by also this guilty verdict and the need for the People's Senate. They are all connected and why we are doing what we are doing. We must hear from each other because we are, the people are in trouble. I just heard yesterday, poverty is the fourth leading cause of death. That really should, uh, that should move you. And it's important that we speak, that we are in a conversation with our brothers and sisters and siblings behind the wall. We must hear from imprisoned people because they are living modern day slavery. They are the direct uh, targets of this, the, this capitalist white false supremacist imperialist system, the worst of what uh, colonialization has to uh, bear upon the people is taking place within our prisons. Legal slavery, it is a, a, over a hundred billion dollar industry. 
We are enslaving our children until they are elders. We have elderly and we have capital E elders in prison, 30, 40, 50, even 60 years, as is the case with dear brother Rochelle McGee. This is happening on our watch, people, in 2023. And there's a whole list of things that I could go through, uh, which I will do at some point uh, to, uh, to justify the need, the desperate need to build this People's Senate and to teach ourselves, relearn how to operate in community. And we cannot do it without the people behind the walls who fight daily for their humanity, thus showing us what it means to fight for the human rights of all and for, for life of the planet. All right, uh, get ready for work week with Steve Seltzer, and we'll see you next week. Free them all, free the land, and all power to the people. The second coming, be the fire of the soul. Blaze it up, blaze it up, blaze it up. I wanna let my soul shine bright and brighten up the night. I wanna let my soul shine bright and make everything alright. Oh now, now, I see your light, I see your light shine bright, I see your light, I see your light shine bright. Follow him, follow him, follow him. We must follow him, follow him, follow him. Follow him, follow him, follow him. We must follow him, follow him, follow him. You know, children of the light, they be not black, no white, they be not round them right. It's time to stand up and fight. Get up and stand up and fight for your right. I like a fire, I wanna tire.